We have an innate human desire to make big experiences out of important moments. This is not new to our current culture. I can't really find a way to blame it on our consumer culture, though I have no doubt that the internet and the need for constant input all the time have exacerbated it for us. It isn't a bad desire when kept within reason. We're doing it this morning. It's good to celebrate, to make beauty, to build joyfully, especially to commemorate an important, important event. To want to show the world a great magnitude of goodness is not a bad thing. The desire to make everything bigger and brighter and shinier is evident all over the Holy Land as it exists today. All around is the evidence of people's responses to the awesome events that took place there thousands of years before. The tendency toward grandiosity is in Roman ruins we visited with their beautiful, intricate mosaics, in the Byzantine churches we saw, and in the Crusader churches that were built over the top of them. It was certainly clear in the hordes of pilgrims that visited places like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the stone of Golgotha, the, slant, the slab where the Marys anointed Jesus' body, and the tomb are all enshrined. It is a massive building, housing communities of several Christian traditions, the Copts, the Armenians, the Orthodox, the Romans. The pilgrims that visit are awestruck, myself among them, at the multi-sensory event that is a visit to the Holy Sepulchre. Pilgrims come by the thousands each day, craving that intensity, responding to the enormity of the events that occurred there and how they are reflected in the enormity of the building that surrounds. I'll be honest, I'm a little concerned by this. Not about the Holy Sepulchre itself, nor about the religious re responses of honor and commemoration and awe that have created the building. Not even about the responses of the pilgrims, their hours of standing in line, their rapture, their tears. I'm concerned that we have become so accustomed to grandiose expressions of everything, from our soda brand preference to our holy sites, that gentleness and subtlety don't grab our attention. They don't hold us. One night, early in my trip to Jerusalem, our guide, John Peterson, an Episcopal priest with a doctorate in archaeology from Harvard, took us underneath the convent in Nazareth where we had spent the last few nights. He flipped on the lights, and we discovered there that in the basement, where you and I would store our Christmas decorations, old furniture, underutilized tools, the sisters were sitting on top of 2,000-year-old ruins excavated in the last few decades. They were running a convent over the top of them. We were taken to a spot with a low doorway leading into a small, low stone room with several even smaller little rooms all around it. There was a large stone disc 
by the entryway, as tall as the door and about four or five inches thick. This, said John, is a rolling stone tomb. Rolling stone tombs were only in fashion for about a hundred years. So the find was remarkable. He explained that women would have prepared a body for burial on a flat stone in the central chamber, and then they would have moved the body into one of the smaller side chambers and walled it up for burial. Now, this tomb, while original and authentic, was not Jesus's, but it was exactly what Joseph of Arimathea would have donated for Jesus's burial. It was not on any map. It was not on any tour. There were no explanation signs on the street pointing to where it is or little placards telling what had happened there. There was minimal lighting, mostly bare light bulbs, by a switch at the top of the basement stairs. It was just a small stone room where bodies of beloveds were prepared and buried 2,000 years ago. And seeing it was a holy experience for me. They would have laid him on a stone in a room just like that one, surrounded by their ointments and their spices and their shrouds. They would have lovingly bathed and arranged him. It was women's work, this preparation. As women, through their love and labor, brought people into the world, so they ushered them out. They had done it for husbands and parents, even their own children, and so they did it for Jesus. The work of caring for the flesh, living and dead, was theirs. I imagine they did it with great tenderness, maybe with hot tears of grief and disappointment in their eyes. They anointed his body until the scent of nard filled that small space, infusing itself into their clothes and their hair, a scent of death unlike any we know today. Heavy, holy. But the evening was short. And in order to be able to fulfill their religious duties to the living, the women left the silence of the tomb and the intimacy of their work for the world outside. A world that moves constantly toward light and sound and fecundity, toward life. A world that does not pause long for death. Their work wasn't quite finished. He wasn't yet buried. But the work could wait until the Sabbath was over. They did not move him in and wall him into his final resting place, but they left him on that stone slab, and the stone outside was rolled to cover the door. And that is when we come upon them in our story this morning. They have returned, perhaps to visit, to perhaps to to finish the burial rituals they started. They expected to return to that intimate silence, to their women's work, to death. What they found was quite different. There was an empty tomb, no body to prepare for burial. There was an angel, one angel, 
one angel who implores them first and foremost, do not be afraid, for this is apparently what angels say. The angel then simply tells them to go find the disciples and tell them Jesus was raised. Even the, even the, sh- the coarse shepherds at the nativity got a multitude of heavenly hosts. But on this day, when death has been shattered, the world has been shifted from its axis, one angel brings the message. And then Jesus himself shows up. And that, too, is curiously devoid of fanfare. He's standing there. They touch him. They grab hold of those feet that I, must, that I imagine must still smell of that anointing nard. He opens with greetings, which is the first century version of, hey. Then gives them the same message as the angel. Go find our friends. Tell them what's going on. And they go. And there it is. That is the resurrection as told by Matthew. Everything about our Easter story this morning belies our human desire for bigger, better, louder, brighter. The whole story ends much in the way it began, much in the way it progressed. Without fanfare, without self-aggrandizement, Jesus returned as he left, quietly, purpose. If we weren't paying attention, we might not even notice. How do we fit this gentle story into its earth-shattering reality? God has upended the world, even again. God is showing us that there is enough here to be surprised at, Enough here to be fascinated and to be floored by, to live for, to change for, even without a multitude of heavenly hosts or a white steed or a marching band. This is, after all, the same God who came triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. The same God born in a stable to a woman. God is changing the world, destroying death, creating life everlasting without so much as a neon sign to point it out. We have been talking and singing and arguing and writing and preaching about this event for thousands of years, and yet the event, the event itself, is quite quiet. And the quietness does not devalue the magnitude of the resurrection. God could have done this in any way we can imagine, in any way God can imagine. And this is the one that God chose. Simple, faithful, quiet, earth-shattering. It is here that I'd like to point out that the God who chose to present the ultimate destruction of death in this understated way is the same God who created the world. Simply, systematically, our scripture tells us, and the same God who made us out of what? Dirt. And most importantly, the same God who made us exactly how we are supposed to be. 
The lesson of the resurrection this morning has nothing at all to do with bigger, better, brighter, louder, or smarter. It doesn't even have to do with more faithful. The lesson of the resurrection has everything to do with most loved. Nowhere in our story this Easter morning does Jesus give the the instruction that we should be more or be greater than we were created to be. In fact, Jesus gives no instruction at all save to tell the women to go find their friends. Death was conquered. We are free of its confines because we are loved beyond measure. We are loved more than we can ever deserve, not because we're better. We cannot be any better, any brighter, any bigger, or any more of all the rest. We are made by God for love. We can be only that. We can be all that, fully and completely. When we go searching in the story of the resurrection for the white steed and the marching band, the choirs of angels and disco lights pointing the way, we will be disappointed every time. When we are looking for a message that is loud and brassy and bright, that will knock us over with its largesse, that will move us to tears by its artfulness, we are looking in the wrong place. When we save Easter for one time of year and then expect to be carried away for the next 364 days by its magnificence, we may be missing the point. If instead, we stop looking for grandiosity to change us, but instead shift our our perspective, we will find the resurrection everywhere. In our children, in our parents, in our churches, in our homes, and maybe even, in the case of that convent, in our basements. It's not just an Easter story. It is an everyday story. And with each glimpse, our perspective shifts, and we are made new. The surprise is in the mundane, as God so often is. The God who made us out of dirt also created us for fantastic things. The God who rose from the dead appears alone with a, hey there, There is holy, holy, holy in the church of the sepulchre and in the tears of the pilgrim. And there is holy, holy, holy in the cinder block church and in that old worn prayer book with the pages falling out. The gift of this resurrection story is the opportunity to train our perfectly created eyes to see all of it. And to know that God is here, and God is there, and God is everywhere, and death is no more. Alleluia. The Lord is risen.